the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Waterproof Matches join with their more radical Strike Anywhere brothers and sisters to oppose banning from the pudgy fingers of three-year-olds. It's not like three-year-olds can't use their phones to search how to start a fire with a lighter, says match leader Smokey Holloway. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have part three of our excellent interview with David Weber and Jacob Hollow, with Bain publisher Tony Weisskopf also stopping by. We discussed The Gordian Protocol, a nationally best-selling science fiction novel by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. It's got time travel and spaceship battles, several weird far futures, and a plot to change history. And it's got believable intelligent heroes from past, present, and future as well. It's a really fun book. David, Jacob, and Tony talk about it. And we conclude the interview this week. And we continue with a complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Hey, there's a new monthly contest about to go live June 1st, and it's an easy one to enter. Sometimes we want you to write up a paragraph and be all creative and amusing, but June is just too hot for that, so we have an easy contest this time. All you got to do is write out a book title, and this one is for a Leaden Universe book. Sharon Lee and Steve Miller go with shorter titles, unlike that poetic David Drake character, for instance, who seems to make his titles longer than a book sometimes. It's a great big Leaden universe. Spanning over two dozen novels and many more short stories, novelettes, and novellas, the Leaden universe by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller is one of the most complex, enduring series in science fiction. In June, Bain is proud to release a Leaden universe constellation, that's a collection, volume four, and to celebrate, we're asking you to tell us your favorite entry in the long-running series for a chance to win a signed copy of this great new collection of Leaden Universe stories. Just send in the name of your favorite Leaden Universe novel, novella, novelette, or short story to be entered in a random drawing. Send it to contest at Bain.com. For more details, check out the Bain.com front page over there in the left-hand side for the link to the contest page. And while you're there, sign up for the bi-monthly newsletters. This is part three of a three-part interview with David Weber, Jacob Hollow, and Tony Weiskopf talking about the Gordian Protocol. Part two is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome David Weber and Jacob Hollow to the podcast, and we also have with us Tony Weiskopf, Bain Publisher. Hi, everyone. Hey. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series, with latest entry, The Most Excellent Uncompromising Honor, now at booksellers everywhere. David has had 29 New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 8 million David Weber books in print. David is also the author of many other Bain books, including the epic fantasy Bazel series, with latest entry, Book One in the Ken Hoden sub-series, Sword of the South. 
He's the author of The Road to Hell with Joel Presby, along with two other books in the Multiverse series. And out now, we have a very excellent new novel by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. Jacob Hollow is a former Ohioan, former Michigander, living in sunny South Carolina. He describes himself as a writer, gamer, hobbyist, and engineer who started writing after his parents bought him an IBM 286 desktop back in the 80s. He's been writing ever since. Add booksellers everywhere now is The Gordian Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. This is a new adventure science fiction novel set in a totally new Weber milieu with both spaceships, far future tech, and most of all, mind-bending time travel. Well, this is one of the things I've, I've, I, I like about this book is, is human fa uh, fallibility. <laughs> so we think we've figured out time travel, but maybe we don't have it exactly right. We think we've figured these things out, but maybe it's not, maybe this doesn't actually work. And, <clears throat> and the idea that, that our heroes are constantly testing these, these suppositions um, is, I think, part of what makes the fun of the book. Well, I think that's a big part of it. I think another part of it is that the villain who is chasing uh, uh, Raybert all the way through the book um, and who is absolutely determined to destroy him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is in most ways um, a good and moral person. Okay, now, Jacob, um, why don't you, <laughs> I'm going to let you do this, why don't you <clears throat> explain how, how uh, I could say that uh, Shigeki is a good and moral person when he has been such a ruthless empire builder. Talk a little bit about that difference between the two 30th centuries and why the way that Shigeki has structured his agency and what he does with it is necessary. Well, I mean, one one of the things that uh, Shigeki does is that, uh, I mean, Rybert is is guilty of um, uh, just these monstrous crimes, just just for the sake of, of of certain things that you know he he has technology he's using because just by um, existing, yes, yeah, just just by existing. So there's. You know, if if Shigeki wants him gone and gone permanently, okay, he has Jacob. Jacob. Yeah. Why? <laughs> why are these things that he has? What is it? Uh, what's the difference between the 30th century and admin that makes Raybert's very existence a threat to not 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 the. By the way, we have to fix this problem. I'm talking about the DNA of the two societies. Before we get to that, let's just say momentary. Let's let's um, talk a moment about the plot. I don't think it's going to be any much of a spoiler to say, bang, Benjamin Schroeder's life completely changes. Uh, he's not a professor looking for tenure now. He has um, He's in a completely different universe, but he remembers the old. And this has led to a big problem in the future, because there are two different futures now, and the bad guy is from a future that's not the same future as Raybert. Well, or maybe not. Anyway, <laughs> it's not just two different futures. It's um, it's a it's a knot. I prefer the term antagonists. 
to 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 bad guy. Even though he does treat him rather badly in a in a permanent sort of sense. Well, no, but I have to say that Shigeki, part of the problem Shigeki has here uh is that he treated Raybert too gently when he discovered what Raybert was quote guilty of, close quote, simply by existing. Um all right. Essentially <laughs> What we have here is that there has been the, the guys from Raybert's 30th century uh, and the guys from, from Shigeki's 30th century, both Siskov and Admit, have demonstrated to their own satisfaction that they cannot change the past. So you can't, for example, as Shigeki, who is the head of a security agency uh, for Admin, you can't go back and arrest. You can't be Tom Cruise, go back and arrest him before he commits the crime. Because, yeah, you could arrest him, you could bring him up to the future, but it's going to reset as soon as you left. He's going to go ahead and commit the crime anyway. You can't prevent something that predates the edge of existence from happening. Okay? Um, you can go back and you can do intelligence gathering, which is what Shigeki does. You can You can follow this guy back, find his associates, find them in the present, etc., which is precisely what he does. Um, but you can't change the past. Both sides know this. Um, well, unfortunately, it turns out they were wrong. I can't imagine how that could possibly happen in a David Weber novel. Um, and the past gets pretty cataclysmic, cataclysmically trained, creating the, the Gordian knot. That is where the title of the book comes from. And Raybert doesn't know how the past has changed. He just knows that prior, that, that, that you know, despite all the theory that says you can't, that it has changed and that he has to figure out what's happening because it's created this, this weakness uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the multiverse. And he didn't know it was a multiverse until he found this. He thought it was all just, you know, like one universe, and it's not. Right. And it's, it's created uh, a situation in which 16 universes have become entangled. There's for want of a better term, there's a breach in the wall, and energy is pouring through it into one of the universes. And it is, it is moving towards the edge of existence. At uh, It's like, like a time storm, uh, a cyclone howling up the timeline. When it reaches the edge of existence, basically 16 universes will experience the Big Bang all over again. So it's a death sentence for 16 universes if it isn't untangled. And it's about, what, Jacob, 3,000 years in the future of the edge of existence, I think we postulated that this happens. Is that about right? Uh, you know, we, we actually changed that number, and I forget which number we ended up with, actually. I, I, think, I think I was originally going to be 5,000, and I think we pulled it back to 3,000 because you were looking at how you had calculated the rate of the time storm's progression and it you know there was this misplaced decimal point or something and it was actually three thousand anyway uh the point is that raybert sees this as a catastrophe which has to be prevented at all costs so when he returns to the 30th century he returns to the 30th century in a universe that isn't his and he promptly does what a good good uh, uh, academic nerd would do. He goes to the authorities to report the problem, and the authorities say, wait, <laughs> you want to fix it so that our universe never existed? 
so that 15 others will be fine. And this is not going to happen for another 3,000 years? Okay, I'm sorry. I don't think I'm really interested in in, uh, phasing all of my friends, neighbors, children, and loved ones out of existence. I can't imagine how Raybert, you know, would have, would have, would have, could have possibly anticipated that anyone might react in that parochial, self-centered fashion. Um, <laughs> and Shigeki is the guy that he reports it to. That's why it's it. He's doing all these illegal things because in this future, the things that that Rybert Raybert has are things like um, nanotechnology, for instance, and uh, self-aware beings and such these are these are it's called the yan lua protocol or something like that right it's a well okay i told jacob i I told jacob that we needed uh uh a, a, a defining sort of technological near miss for both societies to to define how they went where they got to um, and uh, I especially liked the one that he came up with for Siskov. Um, it was <laughs> it was awful, but it was also funny. Um, for uh, and, and it was it was by the way nanotech, uh, but you know, um, for um, for um, turning a whole chunk of China into pinballs. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was it was bad. Yeah. Um, and in admin, the problem was basically Skynet. Uh, in a way, uh, it was a it was a uh, Chinese military AI that broke out of the box and started following the only imperatives that it had. And there's a reason that uh, the language that uh, that Raybert speaks has a lot of Chinese in it, and the language that Shigeki speaks doesn't. Um, and the reason is that in order to fight to save the rest of the human race, uh, the rest of the world basically had to saturation bomb China to take out the AI that had gotten loose. Um, and so both of these societies have these traumatic technological experiences in their past, and they react to them differently. Okay. Um, and it colors who they are. Admin really and truly, in a lot of ways, um, is the, 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 the brutalized child who grows up uh, with a, a defensive mindset. Okay? And Siskov, where terrible as the near-miss was, it did a whole lot less damage. Okay? Um, more embraces technology, but with the understanding that you have to keep an eye on the genie. Okay. Um, but does that seem like a fair way to put it, Jacob? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, the, the admin's attitude as they're kind of figuring out, you know, what Ryder has and where he comes from is like, well, this must be a, a society that prances through the rain thinking they won't get wet. It's like, what are these idiots doing? <laughs> They're playing with yeah. all this dangerous stuff so casually. How how have yeah. they not blown themselves up yet? Yeah, and, it, and it's coming sometime soon, and this is who we should listen to about what we're going to do with our universe. Um, <laughs> so that's yeah. happened. 
that, that's definitely part of it. Another part of it is that Raybert's 30th century is a genuine post-scarcity economy. I mean, it really yeah. is. They've, they've accomplished that. Okay, admin is still moving through the adjustment period. Um, and the, the, Jacob and I discussed in detail what this transition was going to be like, in our opinion, what the, the psychological, sociological impacts were going to be. But we discussed it so that we could incorporate it into the DNA of the two societies, not so that we could actually you know, go through it uh, in the book. But it kind of colors a lot of what's going on in the admin uh, universe right now. Also, the admin universe is more authoritarian probably isn't the right word. But the admin basically was imposed by force on the entire human race as, as a how do we keep ourselves alive kind of thing. It's pretty totalitarian, David. Yeah. It's, they're, they're, I would not want to live in that society. It's pretty evil. You, you, are, you are incorrect. Oh, okay. All right. Um, there's a lot going on there. Okay, remember that Shigeki is run, doing an end run around the elected head of state for admin because he's afraid that this guy might listen to Raybert and decide that, the, 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 that 16 universes outweigh one universe. But there's these awful prisons. I mean, there's a lot more virtual reality here. And these prisons are... Tell us a little bit about the worst of them, just to, to give an idea of it. Though I love the idea of the one-way um, domain. Well, the one-way domain uh, so is Jacob's in mind. So go, Jacob. All right. So with, with the, the um, Yanlu uh, restrictions, certain technology and information that is not allowed to be out there, um, they for they will basically shunt their um, uh, their worst criminals into one way abstractions, one way virtual realms, and there's there's no monitoring, there's no nothing. They just fire them in, and that's that. And one of the reasons why they do that, other than uh, say like just execute the person, is that um, the admin at the uh, you have to say federal level does not have the right to um, uh, carry out uh, uh, executions. That that's a um, physical uh, a state level right. Yes, but they can yeah. suck out your your connectome and imprison that, which is what they do. Um, yeah, uh, Jacob, so, let me let me throw, let me throw, let, Jacob, let me throw one thing in here because this was a distinction that you made early on when we were discussing this that I think needs to be made here. Um, initially, the, the the there were there are two kind of versions of of where you can be imprisoned. Okay, there's the there's the one way domains that you you're committed to forever once you're launched into it. You know, you're you're on your own as long as the domain is powered up. You're going to be stuck in it. There's no coming back, um, and it's unmonitored. Okay, and then there are the domains which are monitored by the wardens, and where there are in effect um, uh, connectome guards who control conditions in the domain. All right, 
And when the domains were first created, and Jacob, I think I'm remembering our, the history of this evolution correctly. When they were first created, they were all one-way domains. And then somebody hacked one of the domains trying to break some folks out, and they got a look at what was going on in there. Isn't that the way that it evolved? Uh, no, no, they're, they've both always been there. Okay. Um, okay. But, but yeah, you, you are right that there, there was a, there was a, a break in, there was a, where, where someone actually got to see, um, publicly what was going on. And, uh, essentially, um, some of the prisoners thought that everyone had like an, a, uh, like a, a number of times, the maximum number of times they could be killed and then they would be permanently killed. So they were trying to reach that unsuccessfully. Um, mm-hmm. So it was pretty horrific conditions that, that, they, yeah, this that is, they found this inside is, the one-way... Dante's Inferno. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, I was going to make the point that you just made, that this is inside the one-way domains that were mm-hmm. that were unmonitored. Yes, okay, go. And um, so that, that led to a scandal and pressure... To, to do away with them, which actually is one of the one of the ways that the the current chief executor of the admin who um, campaigned on a kinder and gentler admin actually um, came to be elected is that part of his platform is to do away with the one ways which a lot of people within Shigeki's inner circle think is uh, not going to happen because they they view the uh, the one ways as uh, necessary. Um, as you need something, um, you know. You if, need something really no... bad to keep them in line. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And and that's what the they turret. do is they use the one way to keep people in line. Yes. Yeah, and, and Shigeki himself is not uh, an, an, an evil or a... Um, Certainly not by his lights, but also he, you know, he takes no pleasure in inflicting suffering, even on his enemies and people he think are uh, are uh, significant threats to the society that he has sworn to to preserve. Well, he's not a sadist, but that doesn't mean he's not evil. Well, okay, I just I'm 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 defining. All right, I don't think of him as an unmitigatedly evil person. What do I know? Um, but the thing is, the th- okay, here's... When Raybert turns up, Shigeki has all the evidence that he needs to consign him to a one-way domain where nobody can ever hear his story. It can never leak out. Nobody in Shigeki's universe could ever possibly learn about it and decide that he has something going for him. He would just disappear forever into this hellish existence that would never be terminated. And he has all the evidence he needs under the admin's law to do precisely that. Mm-hmm. And instead, he chooses to have him committed to one of the humane domains because his objective is to preserve his universe and everyone in it. And in the process, he's going to do the least harm that he can to this person who he has to eliminate for his society to survive. Okay. 
And so from one perspective, that is, you know, uh, uh, an evil act. He's a nasty guy and all that. So, yeah, you know, from that perspective, it's kind of like a bad thing he does. From the perspective of what he could have done and under his own legal system really should have done, he's incredibly lenient. And that's one of the reasons why he is so determined to defeat Raybert later on. He's the one who let Raybert become the threat by not being sufficiently ruthless when he first met him and recognized what the threat was. And so now he has to be however ruthless it takes to fix the problem. So I would argue that there's some shades of meaning going on in there where you think about whether or not he's evil. Is he the bad guy? Yeah, he's the bad guy. Um, and and is is he the, the, the ultimate threat to the existence of our universe and a bunch of other universes? Oh, damn, betcha, Skippy. But once you get inside who he is and start unpacking what he's doing and why he's doing it, he, too, is a responsibility taker. Uh, it's just that he's taking responsibility for his individual universe, not for the multiverse at large. And it's easier for uh, Raybert to be loyal to the multiverse at large because Shigeki's universe is the mistake, not Raybert's. So Raybert is talking about preserving himself and his universe just the same way that Shigeki is talking about preserving himself and his universe. Um, I think of this more as sort of a yin and a yang than a bad and a good. Do, do you follow the, the distinction that I'm making here? Yeah, well, it reminds me of a typical uh, Weber Solarian League uh, good guy captain <laughs> who's who's ultimately on the evil side but just um, does his do. But, but talk about, all right, so can we talk about these cool time travel spaceships um, a little bit. Tell us about Cleo and about Chronoports and TTVs and all that, um, both of y'all, if you will, and how it works and and, it, and how they're armed. Yeah, yeah. That, well, it got it got fun. Go, Jacob. All right. So um, David gave me the very enjoyable task of of designing the um, the time machines. Um, we have the TTV, the trans-temporal vehicle, which is uh, Clio, is a non-sentient um, control program. That's Rybert's ship. And then we have the chronoports, which are the very heavily armed, <laughs> um, loaded-for-bear time machines that the, uh, the admins, DTI, Department of Temporal Investigation, uh, Shigeki's goons uh, get. And... Um, <laughs> Oh, goods, goods. Here I was talking about nuances, and you throw that word out. Orly cover my oh, 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 well, that's, that's, what, yeah. that's what Ryber calls them. He calls them Shigeki's goods. Yeah, I, so. <laughs> okay, well, okay, one, one, thing, one thing here. In the admin universe, I'm sorry, in the Cisco universe, there is no significant political opposition to the to the uh, societal matrix, in the admin universe, there are still people who see themselves as resistance fighters, and I mention this because they too have some access to time travel technology 
which is one of the reasons that Shigeki's units are armed, because otherwise it wouldn't matter. You go back into the past and you can't affect it anyway kind of thing. Um, but they have to be able to deal with rogue time travel, and they have to be able, if they follow a, a you know trace a rogue time traveler's uh, steps uh, back up to the back up to the present, they have to have the the firepower to bring to bear. Um, they are a police force both at the past and in the present, I guess is what I'm saying, and that's why they have to have armed units while. Obviously, Raybert, that inoffensive little historian, doesn't. <laughs> but I just wanted just wanted to explain why Shigeki's goons have armed ships. <laughs> and, and, uh, Should I be using a different word than than goon? Perfectly reasonable, evil bastards. <laughs> so uh, I really love that you named um, the the um, the. Cisco ship Clio, which is, um, we should point out to those that don't is not, not hit over the head with it, is the muse of history, right? Yes. 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 And and Jacob, uh, I, I will say I will say, Clio is supposed to be uh, um, uh, a non-self-aware um, AI, but she's getting decidedly up in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> She's the biggest smart aleck of the whole. And there's a lot of com- there's a lot, there's of, competition. A lot of competition. <laughs> She's a very good TARDIS. Uh, well, I, I especially liked the uh, the the conversation that uh, Raybert has with her about whether or not uh, Cleo is supposed to fix all the damage in, uh, to one of the characters. Um, <laughs> And where that ultimately leads. I followed but, your directions. I know, I know you tried so well. <laughs> anyway, go, go, go. I distracted you from talking about how it all works. So the um, one one of the the the, um, uh, the nice things about the uh, the differences between the two that uh, lends itself to making the combat interest, interesting is that um, the TTV has superior real space maneuverability, but the chronoports are faster temporally. So the, there's a kind of cat and mouse uh, dynamic um, going on. And um, uh, the other thing that- is that the – yes, David? No, no sorry, Jacob. I was just going to say one of the things that Jacob built in here is a subtly different way in which the two systems, uh, temporal drive systems, um, interact with the time stream, um, and it's made it's made possible by the fact that Cisco's basic tech level is superior to that of the of admin. So the admins. Um, I guess if you wanted uh, uh, um, an analogy from from you know twentieth twenty first century uh, history, um, admin are the the MiG twenty five you know really really fast but not real maneuverable because their technology is not as well developed but they're overpowered um, um, time traveling machines. And the the uh, the TTV is the 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 F-15 
that isn't as fast, but is a lot, lot, lot more maneuverable and generally sophisticated. Would is that a fair analogy, Jacob? Oh yeah, and and the other thing is that the the TTV um, has, you know, it, it has a lot more. What I guess what the first the admin would consider illegal features, and if they even were to allow them, they would be luxury features. It has extensive uh, self-repair and because of that self-modification abilities. And so as the story progresses, it becomes deadlier and deadlier <laughs> and <laughs> is able to say. take on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But again, it's it's that element of change within the book that that, that I that I like. You 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 you, you allow for um, for for growth and for change with circumstance, and that's uh, that's nice to see in a hard science fiction book. And, and Jacob Jacob did that uh, that aspect of of Cleo. Um, he he took it and ran with it, um, and it led to. Uh, a lot of the underlying uh, uh, framework for combat and other events um, in the book. Um, the um, it's one of the things yeah, that is so that cool. Came... Yeah, go Jacob. Yeah, a lot of that. Um, a lot of the tech stemmed from. Um, just very uh, simple lines in the original outline, David, that you you sent me uh, concerning the the admin and the Siskov uh, uh, and the uh, um, like the expectations of what the the time machines would be capable of. And so there was, mm-hmm. you know, well, well, what does what happens if a TTV is stranded? You know, you know it. Uh, you would expect some, you know, you know, self repair ability. I'm like, oh, oh, self repair ability. Okay, well, it's got, you know, atomic printers and bulk printers, and you know, I'm I'm drawing up all this stuff, and you know, okay, it's going to have to have some really cool power supplies. So I'm like, okay, well, let's let's give it a, a really tiny black hole that's evaporating for its energy stores. <laughs> give it an exotic matter shell and do all this crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> And, and 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 what happens here is that between the two of us, we followed the logical implications of the tech base that that Jacob had established within the guideline of where I needed the societies to be to define how combat and everything else breaks down in the book. And I think that's one of the things that science fiction is supposed to be about. And that's why I am so absolutely delighted with the synergistic effect that Jacob and I had on each other in this book. Because it, yeah. I don't think uh, a lot of this would have occurred to either of us working in isolation. But when we when we started mixing it together, Jacob likes to call it like, you know, this is like the, the, the mixture of peanut butter and chocolate. You know, it just hit that sweet spot, uh, and and I and I think it did. I mean, I don't want to. Well, there was. Which one of you is peanut butter? No, we don't. Need that's, that. that's, <laughs> there was one um, part of the the background of uh, Cisco that I put in that I really didn't expect to have any relevance on the story whatsoever, and it was about 
um, or not not Cisco, the admin, one part of the prison yeah. system, and which which is you know the the um, the abstract domains, the, the kind of virtual reality prisons that they were using, and and David then then keyed in on that, and you you sent me a question about you know well, what they you know send you know whether they they try to get you know, Rybert into the prison or they actually succeed or, you know, you know, how do we want to treat this if we're going to, to do, uh, to take this route? And I had, I had an ooh shiny moment. And oh, I, yeah. I said, David, oh, yeah. what if, what, what if we do this? And I, I kind of like detailed out this, this uh, 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 prison break. And I, I, I sent it to him and the response was three smiley faces. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be so much fun. <laughs> I believe I think I think it's safe to say the prison break is my favorite scene. <laughs> it's clear that you had a lot of fun writing it and you have a lot of fun playing with some of these tropes and uh that that have been uh used in science fiction before but you guys bring some new fun stuff to it. Well, I think I think absolutely and I think that the fun that we had writing it I hope will come through for the reader <clears throat> as well. Um, I, this is not a case where we had like different viewpoint characters that, you know, we were each writing. Um, this was a case of where we were both writing both sets of characters, you know, all the way through, uh, the, 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 the I don't want to use the, the wrong term, but the creative tension that created the the overall story um, was in our ability the, the the pleasure that we were taking I suppose in 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 many ways of riffing off each other while we were while we were writing uh, the book um, the um, The the initial concept for the novel was mine, okay? But the final novel is not just artistically, but also, I think, to some extent, conceptually, different from, and I think better than, uh, the original idea that I had when I invited Jacob to come play in my sandbox, and it turned into our sandbox. You know, really exciting thing as, as a storyteller and just, you know, um, working on ideas on, you know, where um, at this point book three could, could go, um, there, there's nothing that really, you know, pins <laughs> us in and, you know, forces a particular path forward. Um, and that yeah. uh, uh, kind of storytelling freedom is, is wonderful. And I think it's going to be yes, a, a really positive for the series. And I, I will say that the the final paragraph of In Death Ground, it's very short. It's like only about three sentences, <clears throat> kind of um, lays that out. Uh, it, it's sort of, Raybert gets to hit a redo button. and It's not In Death Ground, the Gordian Protocol. The Gordian Protocol, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Gordian Protocol. Uh, and it's, it's one that he's been looking forward to for a long, long time. 
Um, but yeah, we, we do have... Because if we're uniting this in the Starfire universe, I'm going to draw the line. <laughs> that is a Gordian knot that maybe no sword could cut. <laughs> well, okay, one, one, of, one of the things that... This is not a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get a new signing moment. <laughs> we, we can make it work. We, you know, um, uh, to quote one of my favorite... One of, one of my one of my friends we can retcon that um the the um there's, there is there is a a okay this book for me is kind of like where i was with say the apocalypse troll um in that or the excalibur alternative in that it creates such uh, uh, I think Jacob used the term freedom. Uh, there, there are so many ways that this, that that the Gordian and Valkyrie and their and their sequels can go. Um, that we are kind of in a position of being allowed, allowing ourselves to unfetter our imaginations. Right. Mm-hmm. Did you see what I'm saying, oh. Tony? Yes. Well, I, yes. that was that was Tony with an I that I was addressing that one because she's the one we got to keep happy. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's pretty easy to tell who's who you're addressing when it's the big issues. <laughs> like, am I going to get paid? <laughs> that, 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 that ultimately depends on the readers. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Did I ever tell yep. you about mm-hmm. his comment on how to overcome writer's block? I was on a panel with him, and somebody said, is there anything an editor can do to, to help a writer through writer's block? And Ben said, yeah, I, I have an infallible solution. And they said, really? What's that? And he said, take away his credit card. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, it's, there's some truth to that. Um, but I, I, I like Tony. One, this is Tony with an I again. Um, one of the things that I really have enjoyed about being associated with Fame Books for as long as I have is the freedom that you guys have given me to go off and do different things rather than saying, okay, the Honor Harrington books are bringing in buckets of money. We need to do just that. Uh, Jim letting me do the uh, the first of the Norfressa novels, for example. Um you guys have never been afraid to let your writers look at different horizons. Um, and that is a huge thing, uh, especially for a, for a successful writer who is going to be under pressure to keep complete, com- keep repeating what has been successful so far. You guys aren't afraid to, to let us go somewhere else. And I think it shows uh, the, the the upside of that shows in the quality of some of the writers that you have found and helped to develop. Um, uh, I'm thinking about John. I'm thinking about Larry. I'm thinking about a bunch. I think I think we have Dave Drake to thank for that. Um, that that we've seen over the course of Dave's career <clears throat> how much uh, being able to do different things has helped 
him and kept him fresh and allowed him to have a long and productive and interesting career um, and do interesting things in fantasy and do interesting things in, in science fiction and do interesting things in military science fiction. Ultimately, the, the, the final product will be better and stronger because it's what that person needs to be doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I do. And that final product is <laughs> the Gordian Protocol. It's not the final product, but it is a uh, interesting new direction for David Weber writing with Jacob Hollow. It has one of the best covers Bain has ever given me. And they've given me some good ones, but I really like the cover on this one. I think I was inspired by the ooh shiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fabulous cover. It is, it is great. Um, Who is the artist again? It's uh, Dave Seeley. Dave yeah. Seeley. Uh, this, 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 you know, you want to, you want to be pleased by any book that you release. Um, there are very few that have been just as flat out much fun to write um, as this one. Uh, and I am totally pleased uh, with the final outcome, which wouldn't have been there if I had written it by myself. <laughs> well done, guys. That was part three of a three-part interview with David Weber, Jacob Hollow, and Tony Weiskopf talking about the Gordian Protocol. Part two is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 27 The capital's Grand Bazaar was very quiet in the hours before dawn. It was about the only time the place was relatively calm, but even then, there were still hundreds of workers getting their booths ready and stocking merchandise for the busy day to come. Rada was very familiar with the bazaar at this hour, because over the last few months, this was the time that she'd normally sneaked away from her secret rendezvous with Devidas to go back to her family estate. It was that familiarity that told her 
something was wrong. The merchants had stopped working. They were all looking back the direction she'd come from, and there was nervous whispering. She overheard the word Inquisition repeatedly. Frightened, Rada hid among the people who were arriving to work and tried to blend in while she eavesdropped. A large group of inquisitors had been seen on their way to the protector's compound. The judges often proclaimed that only the guilty feared the Inquisition, but everyone knew that was a lie. Rada was innocent. In fact, she knew that she was the victim, but she was still terrified of the Inquisition. The law gave them the power to sweep up anyone they suspected of treason or dealing in the forbidden arts, and many of those who were taken were never seen again. And if they were, it was only as desiccated corpses decorating the top of the Order's foul dome. Logically, she knew she should have run, but Devadas had been investigating a supposed Inquisitor on her behalf. Was it possible that he'd angered them? Was her lover in danger? She had to know. So the librarian made her way back toward the protector's compound, doing her best to blend in with the merchants. The workers were afraid of the Inquisition too, but they were morbidly curious when the Inquisitor's attention was on someone else. It was rare to see more than a few masked Inquisitors at a time. Judging by the number of lanterns, there had to be hundreds of them. It was like an army was marching through the bazaar. She'd never have guessed there were so many in the capital. Rada knew there were only a handful of protectors present. During her many recent visits to their compound, the most she'd ever seen at a time was ten, and most of those were barely more than children. They were a relatively tiny order, spread thin over all the continent. Why send an army of inquisitors if they weren't intending to arrest the Lord Protector? This is all my fault. The inquisitors had stopped in front of the compound's wall. The gates had opened, and a lone figure was waiting there to greet them. Rada's heart skipped a beat when she saw that it was Devadas. He was wearing nothing but a sleeping robe tied around his waist. A small group of inquisitors broke off. Their black armor made them look like gliding shadows, and they approached Devadas. She tried to get as close as possible so she could hear what they had to say, but luckily the lead inquisitor shouted his accusation so loudly the whole block could hear. There has been treachery in the north. I bear a message for Lord Protector Devadas. For once the market had fallen silent enough to listen. You found him. Somehow Devadas managed to sound bored, like an army beating down his door before dawn was of no particular note. Speak. By order of the council, the whereabouts of all protectors must be accounted for. The protectors within the capital are to remain confined to the compound unless authorized. If requested, protectors must submit to interrogation at the Inquisitor's Dome. Devadas didn't so much as raise his voice. What is the meaning of this? The lead inquisitor must have practiced beforehand because he delivered his message with gusto. They must have wanted the whole city to know. The traitor, black-hearted Ashok, has escaped, killing members of the governing caste and hundreds of others across House Vidal. Escaped? Why would he bother? The traitor only wants to die. He was aided in his escape by protectors of the law. 
the crowd in the bazaar gasped. Lies. It was confirmed by a multitude of reliable witnesses. They are mistaken, Devada snapped. The council has declared that until the protectors of the law have been freed of this treacherous corruption, the entire order is suspect. Until those loyal to Ashok have been purged, the protectors are... Devadas began walking away. Where are you going? The inquisitor demanded. To get dressed so I can go argue this foolishness with the judges. Was I not clear? You're not allowed to leave your compound. Devadas stuck his head around the wall and surveyed the many lanterns. What did you bring? Two hundred men? I have twenty senior protectors here. Rada knew that was a huge exaggeration, but the way the Inquisitor took a few steps back, he didn't know that. We'd be finished with you in time for breakfast. If you plan on keeping us here, you'd best come back with a real force. You would flout the law? You threaten to turn your blades against servants of the capital, like unto the Black Heart? You made your speech... And I'm sure by sunup the entire capital will be talking, but now you're beginning to annoy me. Go tell your masters that I'll demonstrate exactly how much love this order retains for the traitor by delivering his head to the council myself. Then Devadas snapped an order, and his men closed the compound's doors in the Inquisitor's face. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Bane publisher Tony Weisskopf for stopping by, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a claim to a 100,000-kilometer box of asteroids known to have reserves of nitrous oxide and observable sparkles that are either gold deposits or romance novel vampires and a cup of Time Traveler's Irish coffee, which is when you put the whiskey in and just kind of trust the coffee will eventually appear. For David Weber and Jacob Hollow, authors of The Gordian Protocol, please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 